Let's take a look together at these uh, eight verses. Um, There's a a special word that I want to highlight to you and kind of spend the rest of our time unpacking what that word means and how it affects our relationship to God. And it's found in verse 57. The word is the word portion. Everybody see that word? Portion. Uh, That's a key word to understanding this section and what David is trying to get at about God and his word. Uh, we've all seen the, the scene, maybe you've been a part of the scene where a, a loved one has died and you're kind of gathering around, the lawyer is present, the uh, will is unsealed, and the lawyer begins to read out the deceased loved one's last wishes. Have you ever seen these scenes? And in movies, you know, everything falls apart, everybody starts hating one another, uh, at least in the movies I, I watch, I like murder mysteries. And oftentimes, murder mysteries begin at scenes like this, uh, because inheritances and the way that they are divvied up can uh, cause a a great deal of emotion, wouldn't you say? Uh, And it's not always positive emotion. It can be, but oftentimes it's not, because people automatically disagree as to how the inheritance is being apportioned. That is, how it's being divided up amongst all the parties involved. Uh, Even one time, Jesus was presented with a problem like this. This is a little lesser known story about Jesus, but it's important. Two brothers come to him and say, Jesus, this is in Luke 12, Jesus, make my brother divide the inheritance with me. Make my brother give me my portion. Do you remember how Jesus responded? He didn't go into Judge Judy mode and actually do the thing that they asked. He didn't do it at all. He didn't take the bait whatsoever. Remember what he said? He said, who made me judge or arbiter over this matter? In other words, I think if we could paraphrase, I got bigger fish to fry than trying to help you decide who gets the portion of the inheritance. But then right after that, he tells a story. And in the story, a man who is very wealthy has a great uh, year in his farm, big crops. And so he has to build a bigger barn to hold all the surplus of stuff that he has. He's so, you know, so successful. He even stops and says to himself, self, what wonderful work you've done. Uh, You have Uh, worked so hard and been so successful, you can kick back, retire, eat, drink, be merry, and live off the proceeds the rest of your life. Enjoy it. And Jesus says in the story, that very night, the man dies. And when he shows up in front of God, God says to him, you are a fool. Did you know God called people fools? You are a fool, he says. Why? Because you are rich in the things of the world, but you are not rich toward God. Jesus tells that story when two brothers come to him arguing over inheritance in order to show them that the thing our hearts ought to be most eager to get is an inheritance in God not in the goods of the world, not the things that your parents can pass down to you, but things that only God can give you. That's what the word portion means in verse 57. 
Portion means my inheritance. The thing that I live for, the thing that I most want above everything else, the thing that gives me most satisfaction in my heart. And notice how David says it. The Lord himself is that for me. He is my portion. Therefore, I will obey his laws. I love him. I delight in him. Therefore, his word matters to me. I want to understand it. I want to live in keeping with it. This is also what Jesus said in another place where he said, He who loves me will keep my words. In other words, to give your whole heart to God is the only way to really become genuinely obedient to God. And so let's unpack this tonight, this one word portion. And uh, there are actually six points tonight. And you may freak out by that, but just remember, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one. It's going to be like five minutes per, maybe less. And you can see the points listed out with the appropriate verse numbers. I won't list them all at the front. We'll just go one at a time. Uh, Basically walking through this, showing you how David... Uh, demonstrates that God is his portion and how we can know whether God is our portion too. Okay? First of all, we see David appropriating God in verse 57. He appropriates God. Uh, He says, did you notice the Lord is, and then he uses a pronoun. What pronoun does he use? My portion. And that's what we mean by appropriate. Appropriating means Claiming something as belonging to yourself. Owning something as if it's yours. Taking special interest in it because it is yours or you consider it to be yours. Uh, Stacy and I were at a um, graduation ceremony a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things we noticed is you could look around the room and tell when or whose child was being called, right? You, you know how you tell that? Have you been to a graduation ceremony? The phones come up, they stand up, they're eager, they're shushing everybody else. Uh, when it's not their kid, they're doing the opposite of that. They're, they're the ones talking and getting in the way and not really paying attention. But when their kid comes, poof, right? What, what has happened there? Well, obviously, they have appropriated those particular kids as theirs, and the rest of them, not so much, right? The rest of them can, can come and go. It doesn't really matter. I don't even pay attention. My kid... I am invested in. David has real faith. Real faith. Uh, This morning I said in in our sermon that we need to demystify faith sometimes. Faith is not just, you know, warm and fuzzy feelings that strike you like a bolt of lightning. Faith is a steady decision. Right? It's a steady decision to take God as your God. And to devote yourself to him as his servant. It's all about the pronouns. Uh, Real faith is about the pronouns. Uh, The Lord is not just a portion. The Lord is not even just the portion. The Lord is my portion. I have personally decided to make God the inheritance that I am panting after. And seeking after in my life. Uh, David has been united to God, one writer says, by the bonds of God's word. He's listened to what God promised and he's united himself to God on the basis of that word. He says, God is my God, I am his servant. What, whoever God is, whatever God is, whatever he's offering, that's what I want for me. Uh, kind of like the song that we sometimes sing, take all the world, give me Jesus. 
right? That's a good one. Take all the world, give me Jesus. That's appropriating the Lord. And that's one of the ways you know that God is, as David says, your portion. It's all in the pronouns. I remember when I was a young kid and I first started hearing about Jesus and about the gospel at a church not too far away from where we are tonight. And uh, for a long time, I, I was very fascinated by what I heard. But one particular night, it came to me very clearly, and I was just a young kid. It came to me. Jesus cannot just be the Savior. He must be known as your Savior. And it just, I just thought about that. Is he my Savior? Is he my Lord? He's the Lord. I get that. And I, I trust what this guy up there is saying, that he is the Lord. But is he my Lord? I don't, I don't remember exactly what was said that made me think that, or maybe it was just the Holy Spirit. But it is very vital that every Christian, every person, in order to actually to become a Christian, you have to move from the the God to my God. From the blessings of salvation to my salvation. Right? That's what David does first. He appropriates God. The Psalms are great models of this. Um, and I'll just leave it at that and tell you to go study them and go think about them and pray them and read them because you'll see it all over. My, 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 my. Mine, 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 mine. God has been appropriated. The second thing we see, the, the second way that we know David has the Lord as his portion is in verse 58. He cries out for God. Uh, God is the reason why he prays. He's not just the one to whom he prays, He's what he is praying for. Verse 58. He says, I entreat your what? Favor with all my heart. Uh, you might want to make a note of that word favor if you're someone who likes to make notes and think about something later because the word favor in Hebrew is really the word face. The face. Um, I, I think I know why they translated it favor. I think it's because they're trying to get at what does it mean for someone's face to shine upon you. It means that they're giving you their favor. They're, they're favoring you. But I think it's important to just read it kind of literally too. I am earnestly desiring your face with all my heart. Imagine that. God comes to you. Imagine he came to you and said, ask me anything. Ask anything. What do you want of me? You know, he did that to Solomon. What would your answer be to that question? Uh, one of the, I think, the signs of spiritual maturity as we're growing is that our prayers uh, become less about the things that we want God to do for us and our prayers begin to become more about God with us and in us. That there comes a point in our lives where we just have to say, God, what I want above all else is your face. Your presence with me. Your face shining upon me. Your grace expressed in my life personally, directly. That's important for a number of reasons. One, I mean, think about it this way. I'll just give you this scenario. If all we ever pray for are the things we want God to do for us, what is happening in our hearts as we pray? And it's okay to say positive and negative things because there's both in that. If all you're asking for is, God, I want this, 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 and this done for me, what are the things that are going on in your heart as you pray that way? 
It, it can. It can and on the negative side, it can make you feel more entitled and more disappointed if God doesn't kind of snap into it, snap into action. What else? Definitely shows what you value. Tends to reinforce those values rather than changing those values. Tends to just make them stronger. On the positive side, it it helps you unburden your heart, which is one of the reasons why you should pray for things too. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for things. You should. Because one of the reasons why you pray for things is to unburden your heart of those anxieties and of those that sense of lack that you have and roll that sense of lack over onto God's capable hand, into God's capable hands. But over time, if all you do is pray for stuff, all the things you said are going to happen, plus you're just going to encourage yourself in an obsession over things. Right? It's going to consume you more and more if that's all you're thinking about and worrying about. David had reached a different place in his relationship to God. A different place. And it's a place we all ought to aspire to. I'm not saying we're there yet. I'm not saying I'm there. But I'm saying aspire to this. Where when you come to God, you're not just saying, God, do, 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 do. But you're saying, along with that, God, your face, your face, your face, your face. Your plans, your plans, your agenda in my life, your agenda. What is it, Lord, that you want of me? Do that. Please be pleased yourself through my life and don't just, you know, please me and do the things that I think I need and want. In fact, I think that's why uh, Jesus said to Peter and James and John, remember uh, when they were going into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said something very important to them. He says, Uh, The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Remember that? Well, think about that for a minute. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, so pray. Well, Jesus must be assuming that the prayers of his disciples wouldn't just be flesh-driven prayers, because if that were the case, it would just reinforce the unwillingness of the flesh and not feed the willingness of the spirit, right? It must have been that Jesus was assuming they were going to join him in his type of prayer, which was, Father, your will be done. It was a prayer for the face of God. God, you're my portion. Therefore, give me you. Give me yourself. Uh, Solomon answered that question very similarly when he asked God to give him wisdom. And God loved Solomon's answer. Do you remember that? And I think part of the reason God probably loved his answer is because God knew what it was Solomon was asking for. God, give me you. For you to give me wisdom means you. I'm asking for you to come into me and to be uh, big and large in my life so that I can know exactly how you want me to lead these people. So David cries out to God. Thirdly, See, we're going through these fast. Everybody good? Still with me? All right. Thirdly, we see David returning to God when he needs to. So he's, um, he's appropriating God. He's crying out to God for God. But he's also returning to him when he sees that his, his life has veered off course. Uh, verses 59 and 60 shows us this. Uh, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet. To your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. All right. 
He says, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet. What does that imply he saw when he thought on his ways? Yeah, he needed to repent, right? And he, he looked at his ways and he saw there was a need for him to take his feet and turn them in a different direction, which is what repentance is. In fact, the word used for turn there is the same word used for repentance in Hebrew. It's the same word. To repent in Hebrew means to turn. He says, turn me, or I'm going to even turn myself. Now that I've assessed where I'm at with you and how my life lines up with your word, I, I know I need to turn to repent and change my direction to go in your way. In fact, I know and I want it so much that I'm not going to even going to delay to do it. I'm going to hasten. Uh, I'm going to, the first thing I do when I get done praying is I'm going to start walking in the direction that I know you want me to walk in. Uh, what David has discovered here is that um, God's presence in his life provides the perfect standard of his behavior and it also provides the most desirable standard of his behavior. And that's what it means to have God as your portion. Uh, a lot of people, think about this, a lot of people know that what God's word says to do is the best thing to do. And yet they don't want to do it. Um, in fact, have you ever thought that? You know, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't really want to do it. Uh, it was St. Uh, Augustine who famously, before he became a Christian, he prayed, God, make me sexually pure, but not yet. That was his famous prayer. Uh, many of us have that attitude in different times, right? I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't want to do it. David, clearly, he, he has learned that the right way, according to God, is also the best way. It's the way that is most conducive to true happiness in his life. Not just shallow happiness. We're not talking here about just you know, self-fulfillment. We're talking about real, deep satisfaction of the heart. In other words, God's, God's life is the good life. I don't care what they tell you, right? Uh, it doesn't matter what Corona tells you the good life is, right? Or now even Taco Bell claims, I think that's their new uh, slogan, right? Something about good life or more life, and I don't believe it. Neither should you. Uh, the real good life is following God. Uh, the, the degree to which I don't believe that, is really just the degree to which I'm out of touch with the kingdom of heaven. And I do find myself out of touch with the kingdom of heaven, right? Sometimes, and, and, and maybe even oftentimes in some areas. And that's why I need to do the same thing David is doing. I'm thinking on my ways, and I'm going to turn my feet. And I'm not going to delay. I'm going to hasten, because I, I trust you enough, God, to know that if you tell me to do something, it's going to be the best thing. Not just what I ought to do, although it is, but what I should love to do. That's the difference between having God as your portion and just simply having him as, well, sort of a theory. The God out there somewhere. All right, next thing. In verses 61 and 62, we see David comforting himself in God. 
Uh, he, he's a, this is another form of appropriation. He's taking God as his God, but now he's taking God as his God for a specific reason. Uh, David finds himself in trouble. Look at verses 61 and 62. What trouble does David find himself in? What does it say? Yeah, I got enemies all around me, right? He even talks about how the cords of the wicked are ensnaring me. And you kind of get the picture, at least I do, of just being in, you know, wrapped up in vines. And you can't get out. Uh, kind of like those, um, those vines in, uh, was it Princess Bride? Where they come out and start trying to grab people. Is that the right movie that I have? Maybe I'm thinking of a different movie. Harry Potter? Okay, well, hey, you never know. Uh, you're close, right? Yeah, not, not, I wasn't too far off. Um, yeah, it's like, the, it's like this living uh, tree that's grabbing a hold of us and pulling us down, down, down. That's the way David feels. And yet in that, he says, I'm not going to forget you. In fact, I'm going to take whatever time it, it takes for me to find your comforting promise particularly suited to my situation. I'm going to fight in the midst of my distress. Now, when we're in distress, especially when that distress involves other people around us mistreating us, what is the number one temptation? Woe is me. Woe is me is, is a big one, self-pity. Fight for yourself, all right? I mean, think about it. Remember back in school when you played a game, you playing basketball, and everybody else is fouling, and they're not getting called? What does it make you want to do? What, what is it almost inevitable that you will do? If you can't beat them, join them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to foul you harder. I'm going to get away with it. Because how can you compete when everybody else is breaking the rules? And that is a very strong temptation, isn't it? When people mistreat us, it is so strong for us to either go self-pity or to go, you know what, I'm going to hurt you worse. I'm going to join you in that wickedness that you're doing. David is stealing his heart against that. He says, I do not forget your law. I don't forget, God, how you tell me to treat people. It doesn't matter if people are actually treating me that way or not. I'm going to stick to what you've said. And I know it's going to take a lot of effort because my heart is going to be consistently drawn to try to get comfort by joining the evil people. But I'm going to do whatever it takes. In fact, I'll get up at midnight to praise you and seek your face if that's what it takes. That's what he says in verse 62. Have you ever got up at midnight to do a Bible study? <laughs> it's a rare thing. It's a rare thing. But there are times where that is what is called for. I, I, I love the, um, the, the, the statement of Charles Spurgeon about this section because I think he, he's right about this. He says, look, Apparently, David could not find enough time during the day to study the words of divine wisdom or to bless God for them. And so he gave up his sleep that he might express gratitude for such a law and such a lawgiver. He couldn't find enough time during the day to do it, and so he gave up his sleep to do it. I was convicted by hearing that, by the way. Because it's awful hard to get up at midnight. Well, sometimes it's not hard to get up, but it's hard to get up and do something productive. 
Sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night, but you begin to go immediately into self-pity mode. Oh, I can't fall asleep. I'm never going to get back to sleep. I'm going to be so tired in the morning. Instead of what David did, look, I didn't have enough time today. I'm desperate because my life is being hemmed in by all kinds of enemies. I'm being tempted to join them in their wickedness. I need the time with the Lord. I'll give up sleep to do it. I'll just leave this question for you. What are you willing to give up sleep for? Hmm, think about it. I'm just going to leave it there. And again, I want you, I want to hear, I want you to hear me. I'm not saying I've arrived at David's stature. I am one with you seeking to aspire to be like him when I grow up. But I do want to be a person that when I don't find time during the day to seek the Lord, I'll give up sleep to do it. Because it's my number one priority. Why is it my number one priority? He is my portion. He's all I got. And in a sense, he's all I want. Right? In a real deep sense, he's all that I want. It's his face. It's his favor. It's his ways. Those are the things that are going to get me where I need to go. And I'll do whatever it takes to get there. Pete Rose, the great uh, baseball player, famously once said about how much he loved baseball. He said, I would run through hell in a gasoline suit to play baseball. That's an extreme statement. But you know, there's something about that in David. I'll do anything to get to God. And Jesus Christ said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Wow. And so instead of joining the rule breakers, instead of getting all self, full of self-pity and full of bitterness and hatred towards the circumstances and people around him, here's David at night burning the midnight oil, praising the Lord, opening up the word, and trying to get his heart into the right frame to serve him. Don't you want to be like that when you grow up? Hmm? I do. All right, next thing. Verse 63, we see David desperately associating himself with God's people. In verse 63, he says, I am a companion of all who fear you, God. Of those who keep your precepts. A lot of times when we think about David, we think, okay, David is this man. He's like, a, he's like John Wayne of the Old Testament. Right? He's a Western. I mean, he's out there on the run. The bounty's on his head. Saul is chasing him. He's hiding in caves. He's, you know, going across enemy lines and pretending like he's crazy in order to get away from the Philistines, all kinds of cool stories about David. And all of it, at least in those early parts of his life, all of it makes David seem like such a lone ranger. And yet, uh, what is one thing you know about David from the other times of his life? What's that? Very loyal companion. He had friendships. He had deep desires for other people in his life. 
In fact, even during those times when he was supposedly John Wayne in it out there, even then he had his boys. Remember what they were called? The mighty men that he had around him? And there were some crazy ones, you know, that you can read about the things that they did. They were, you know, a left-handed man who killed a lion in the snow in the middle of a pit. I don't know why that is included in Scripture, all those details, but I praise the Lord for that man. Uh, he must have been an awesome companion of David. And, and David loved them. He, he devoted a lot of time to them. He gave a lot of honors to them. And they equally devoted themselves to David. David was not a lone ranger. During those times of his life, he was forced to hide a lot. But he always had people with him, even when he was hiding. And as soon as he was able not to hide, he didn't hide. In fact, here's some of the things you hear David say. We read one earlier in the service. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Oh God, when can I appear before God? I'm estranged from your people. I'm estranged from your house because of circumstances. When will I be able to get back with them? Because I love being with people who share this value of mine that God is my portion. I feed off of their faith. I contribute to their faith. I, I just have to have it. Community, associating with other people who have faith is a, is a need that David felt in his life and he was committed to it. Absolutely committed to it. Even as king... You know, in a king, you know, you think about a king as being someone who doesn't need other people. Even as king, David loved the companionship of the rest of the faithful. He, he often had these glorious uh, trips up to the temple where all the people would come together and he would get to worship with them. And after the worship service, he would send presents out to all the families of Israel just to bless their heart. David was a remarkable man when it came to the church and the people of God. Hello. Right? Amazing. Um, consider this as well. David, uh, David when he was uh, king, the one time in his kingship that David decided he could be alone, what happened? It's important. It actually, it actually stops to tell you that David was foolishly alone because it tells you in the spring of that year when it was customary for the kings to go out to war, David stayed behind. There was one year of his life David felt like, you know, I don't really need the boys. I don't need to get out there. I've earned my keep and I'm just going to stay back and chill by myself. I'm going to do my own thing. And it was during that spring that David met, or with meet is a strong word, saw Bathsheba. It's instructive, y'all. When God is our portion, one of the things that it's going to do is it's going to create this, this sense of need and, and desire for other people who also take God as their portion into their life. Don't you love the church? Isn't that a love that God has put into your heart? for the people of God, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of the greatest friendships you can ever have 
are those that are built on a shared Lord and a shared Savior. I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus knew his need for his Father. Would you say Jesus also saw his need for other people? When do you see that? Yeah, he picked 12. He, he took them to the garden. He took three of the 12 to the garden when he was at his most intimate moment with the Father. He still wouldn't go alone, right? And, and yeah, I know he, he went a little further along, but they were there within eyeshot. He, he would not be alone uh, for long, long periods of time because he knew that, you see, his Father loves a people. His Father loves this idea of building a nation or building a, a family. And Jesus wanted to be a part of that. He's the head of that family, the Lord of that family. And so we also, if we have God as our portion, would want God's family. And finally, we come to the last thing. This is the sixth. You didn't think I'd be able to do it. I, I know. I saw the faces. Verse 64. The last thing we see David uh, doing is longing for God's personal instruction. I love verse 64. Uh, it is one of my favorite verses in the whole Psalms. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. The earth is full of your mercy, as the King James has it. The earth is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. What do you think he means? The earth is full of the steadfast love of God. What does that mean? How does he know that? He's everywhere. He's, God is everywhere. Yeah, that's right. He's everywhere. He's in all things, moving and working in all situations. Uh, certainly, uh, you can think about other Psalms where David talks about how the, the day after day pours forth speech, night after night knowledge that the glory of God is being put on display in heaven and earth all the time. The created world shows God because everything that exists is a testimony to the generosity and the goodness of a sharing and giving God. David knew that. He, he loved to experience it. Uh, David had also experienced it in his own life through personal interventions that God had made in his life. Times God showed up. And times even when he didn't expect, or maybe no one expected him to show up. Think about little David before Goliath. Nobody thought God could do anything about that situation, and yet there God was. The earth was full of God's steadfast love and mercy. It was always ready at hand to, to receive by those who believed. And yet, notice, David says, the earth is full of your love, but I still want you to teach me your statutes. What you have here is the difference between God's omnipresence and God's personal related presence. David loves the omnipresence of God. It thrills his heart. Oh, he's amazed. The earth is full of your mercy. And yet, it makes him not less desperate, but more desperate for the personal, related presence of God. Teach me. Give me FaceTime, Lord, 
face to face, tell me about your word. Open my heart, open your word, and let the two meet. It's a little bit like when you go to a concert. Um, you know, say, uh, we, I know we had a few friends and people that we knew that went to Taylor Swift a little while back. Big deal, apparently. They tell me, the kids tell me. Uh, lots of people went. Uh, every single person in, was it in Amelie Arena? Or, Amelie, every single person in Amelie Arena was in the presence of Taylor Swift. Right? But very, very few of them got to have any FaceTime with Taylor Swift. Very few, if any. That's the, that's the difference that we're talking about here. Every human being is in the presence of God always. Everyone. Every created thing is always in the presence of God. And yet, there's a different kind of presence, a VIP access, if you will, a, a backstage pass that God gives to his people saved by grace, where not only do we get to enjoy the sort of outer glory of his presence in creation, but we get to come face to face with his glory in his word and through his son and by his Holy Spirit. We get the personal touch and the personal teaching and thus become lifelong learners at the feet of Jesus. That's different. David's enjoyment of the one did not diminish his desire and desperation for the, the other. And this is the problem when we think, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, why do I need to read my Bible? Why do I need to pray? Why do I need to come to church? Why do I need to be all desperate and like David, hungering and thirsting for God. God's everywhere. I can meet God in the deer stand. I've heard that so much, right? <laughs> My whole life I've heard that. And yes, of course you can. I can meet God on the fishing boat. Sorry, Bob, I know you can. I, I believe it. I've done it. I've, see, I've met God in the fishing boat. I, I have. But there's difference, isn't there, between the outer creational glory of God and presence and that personal kiss that he reserves for his friends by his word and spirit. For that, you do need to read the Bible. For that, you do need to pray. For that, you do need to come to church. For that, you do need a personal relationship with him by faith. You do. That doesn't get gained through hunting and fishing and all the rest. David knew God was his portion. And he did not leave his relationship to God to happenstance. He didn't. He didn't say, okay, you know, I have a relationship with God. Whatever, however much I grow is how much I grow, and we'll just let it happen. We'll let it ride. David desperately thirsted for more of God and asked for it and never stopped asking for it all the rest of the days of his life. And every day, David saw more. And, of course, David had the special gift of the Holy Spirit giving him words, giving him a lot of the Bible, right? David wrote so much, most all the Psalms. He had that special gift. But it is no more amazing than what God gives to every Christian. David got some of the words of the Bible when God inspired the Psalms. Guess what you get? Every single word. What David only dreamed to, to get. Right? 
How precious is the word of God? How important is it that God's word gets into our heart? Because it's there that the real face time with God occurs. It's one of the reasons why we believe that reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, listening to the Bible, all those things are the primary means of grace. It's because it's there that God stoops down and kisses his friends. It's not because, I mean, don't, listen, it is not because we're wordy people. We just love words, 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 words. You know, if anything, God loves words, and that's why we love the word, right? God chose to communicate through words. I didn't pick that. You know? Whether you consider yourself a wordy person or not, God communicated through words. It's the way that he stoops to kiss his friends. And so David said, Lord, I know the world is full of love. I know that your love is everywhere, but I want you to teach me your words. So let me ask you, is God your portion? Those two brothers who came to Jesus said, Jesus, divide the inheritance with me. Make sure that my brother gives me my due. Jesus made sure they knew that was foolish. Because instead of making the eternal God their portion, they were making stuff their portion. And it's important that all of us consistently ask ourselves, am I making my inheritance, the, the, the cry of my heart, is it based on created things? Or am I giving my heart over to the love of God? Think about that. We need to appropriate him cry out to him, return to him when needed, comfort ourselves in him, associate with his people, and long for his personal FaceTime instructions.